Elijah Rock, shout, shout. Elijah Rock, coming up, Lord. Elijah Rock, shout, shout. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Martin Luther King. In this hour, we wanted to talk about the way the media makes over Martin. And this comes from a column I had written in 2013, and here's how it begins. And you'll be hearing a lot from Martin, because I quote him intensely and extensively and compare and contrast His speeches were those of Malcolm X. Listen carefully to all the celebrations of Martin Luther King this week. Listen very carefully. There is one aspect of King's life that you won't hear much about, no matter how hard you try. His devotion to his faith, his devotion to his God, his devotion to Jesus Christ. Listen carefully and you'll hear endless mentions of Dr. Martin Luther King, but little if any mention of the Reverend Martin Luther King. Listen carefully to all of the video and audio clips, and you'll hear some of the greatest rhetoric and some of the most passionate speeches of the 20th century. The sound bites and clips will stir your soul, but you won't hear the references to God that so often filled his speeches, nor will you hear references to the book that inspired him, the Bible. You won't hear references to God because the secular, secular media dislikes the Bible so much and public affirmations of a belief in Christ, that they do everything in their power to redact them. The Reverend Martin Luther King loved the Bible so much that he got an undergraduate degree in Bible studies. At modern universities, they call it a divinity degree. His Ph.D. was in theology. To King, the Bible wasn't some strange old book that didn't have relevance in modern times. It was God's Word. It was a book that was and always will be, relevant because it expresses eternal principles and eternal truths. And you know how much the media hates talking about ideas like eternity, or principle, or that really awful word, truth. In a version of his famous A Knock at Midnight speech, which you are unlikely to hear in the media this week, you're going to hear it here. King started with a quote from one of his great speeches from Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. But a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Listen to his tenor and tone. This sounds more like a sermon you'd get on a Sunday. And it was. Why start a speech about the problems of the 20th century with a parable from an ancient text? Well, Reverend King explains why. Now, this is a parable dealing with the power of persistent prayer. And as I look at this parable, I see within it a basic outline and a basic guide 
in dealing with many of the problems that we confront in our nation and in the world today and the role of the church. Now the first thing that we notice in this parable is that it is midnight. It is also midnight in our world today. And we are experiencing a darkness so deep that we can hardly see which way to turn. It's midnight. He goes on then in this speech to talk about the limits of psychology to help us in this struggle at midnight. People are more worried, more frustrated, more bewildered today than at any period of human history. What are the popular books of the bestsellers in religion today? They are books entitled Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul, and who are the popular preachers? They are so often preachers who would preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down. And so we have retranslated the gospel to read, go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. All of this is indicative of the fact that it is midnight in the psychological order. It is midnight in the psychological order, and King believes there's only one thing that can cure that, and that's a spiritual cure for those things that beleaguer us in the material world. And this was King's Essence. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, you're going to hear from King more from this great speech and another. You'll also hear from a young Malcolm X. Because these two great men were competing for the soul of the nation. One a Christian voice of tolerance and love, and the other a radical Islamic voice of hate and anger, and in the end, war. This is Lee Habib and more with the story of the Reverend Martin Luther King here on Our American Stories. Can't you see that I'm 
At the end of a storm Is a golden sky And the sweet silver song Of a lark Walk This is Lee Habib, Elvis' love of gospel. Well, watch the documentary on it. comes on PBS now and then. After his concerts, he'd go downstairs with his guys, go around a piano and play, as he called it, the music he really loved. By the way, he always performed it in public, too. And we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and the universal appeal of his Christian faith. Well, we were just commenting during the break that, my goodness, it was so beautiful and so, so inspiring that young white Jewish kids from the north marched down in the south with them, and some, it cost them their lives. But Martin's faith inspired that kind of courage in people, even people who didn't believe as he believed. And for the hour, we're going to talk about how the media just doesn't bring so much of Reverend King's faith to light, and that's what we're doing here, because, my goodness, it animated everything he did. And so we're covering his famous knock at midnight speech, which everyone should listen to and hear. It's one of the great sermons, I think, of all time, and one of the great pieces of theological thinking. So toward the middle of the speech, we had just heard King talk about the limits of psychology, and this is where God has to come in. King then goes on to condemn moral relativism. Midnight is a time when all moral values lose their distinctiveness. So in our world today, for so many people, there's nothing absolutely right, nothing absolutely wrong. Nobody is concerned about obeying the Ten Commandments in so many instances. They are not important. Everybody is busy trying to obey the Eleventh Commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. (laughs) This tragic moral laxity, this tendency to be caught up in the chains of conformity, is destroying the soul of our nation. So why don't the media showcase this dimension of King, you might be wondering? Or this clip, we found it, they can't? Well, after all, his commitment to equality and his commitment to social justice were driven by the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. Why don't we see or hear the video clips of his religious speeches, even though they are easy to find? Thanks to YouTube. And that's where we found this one. You don't think producers at ABC, CBS, and NBC News could find this? We know why. Because secular liberals love to secularize the sacred. They love to remove King's source of inspiration, his love for God, and reduce it to something more earthly, such as his desire for social justice. But whose justice is the question? His own, the government's, the Supreme Court's? No. Always it was God's. But don't trust me on this one. In what may be the most beautiful document written in the 20th century, 
Letter from a Birmingham Jail. King identified his source of inspiration. And we had somebody do a dramatic reading of this, because I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the 20th century. Pick it up and read it sometime. But take a listen to our guy do a reading from this remarkable pamphlet. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. King was in jail when he wrote that because he believed that the law of man had created segregation, and that law was unjust. In jail, he had addressed why, as a man of God, he felt compelled to break the law to change it. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. So here was King imposing his view of morality through his faith onto the legislative body. Today you would hear never-ending cries of separation of church and state. What a stupid and silly and narrow version of what that all means. King spoke with great clarity in this essay. He was fearless, he was faithful, and that's what made him so dangerous, not only to segregationists, but to racists everywhere. And that's why, by the way, totalitarians always get rid of God first. King also invoked God's mercy in his speeches, and nonviolence was always his methodology. Not everyone agreed, though, with King's approach back in the early 1960s. A young Muslim named Malcolm X had a different vision for black America. Malcolm X was a member of the Nation of Islam and a follower of its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Like King, Malcolm X was a brilliant orator, but he had little tolerance for King's Christian emphasis of nonviolence, especially the whole part about loving our enemies and the whole part about loving the same white people who had mistreated so many black people in our country. Indeed, Malcolm X thought King was weak and his message feeble. On more than one occasion, he publicly accused King of being an Uncle Tom, a tool of the white establishment. In Malcolm X's message to the grassroots in Detroit in 1963, he described the role of this Uncle Tom. The same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Toms, 20th century Uncle Toms, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control. Keep us passive and peaceful in nonviolence. That's Tom making you nonviolent. And Tom was Reverend King. This was a direct attack. Malcolm X wasn't just attacking King, though. He was mocking him. In the same Detroit speech, he decried King's Christian nonviolence. Our revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you sitting around here like a knot on the wall saying, I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution. Two competing visions, folks. One, Christian love. Another, well, let's face it. This was the Nation of Islam's hate creed. Malcolm X thought all of the hymns, all the prayers, all the hand-holding, all that churchiness, it was just plain silly. Whoever heard of a revolution where they lock arms, 
singing, we shall overcome. Just tell me you don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging. Leadership matters, folks. Philosophy matters. So imagine being a young black man in the 1960s and hearing these two appeals. This was the fight. By the way, no one's doing this story today here on Martin Luther King's Day. Nobody's doing this. So thanks for listening. Thanks to my great team for pulling this all together. Luckily for America, King's Christian impulse prevailed. Now, you won't hear any of this on TV or the radio anytime today or this week. The media will simply ignore all this yucky, messy God talk and all the icky Jesus talk. And you won't hear the secular left invoke the separation of church and state when it comes to King's legacy. You will never hear the secular left complain that King used the power of his pulpit and the power of his faith to change the culture and indeed change the law. When many of us wonder as we approach the national holiday in his honor is this, what would King have to say about our current problems? What would he have to say about fatherlessness in the African-American community? Heck, in our whole country. What would he have to say about crime, drug abuse, the culture? What would he have to say about abortion? These are things to think about. And again, you heard what he was up against. It wasn't just the white folks going after him and the segregationists. It was black folks competing for the soul of African Americans across this country, Malcolm X in particular. We know what he would have said about the economy, by the way. King was a social justice liberal, and he cared passionately about the poor. When we come back, we're going to spend a little time talking about that and what Christians are implored to do by God with their money. And the question is, do we give it to the government to redistribute, or do we give it ourselves, give it to our churches and the churches redistribute that money? A big question, a big philosophical question we Christians grapple with every day. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories for the hour. Martin Luther King, the secularization of the sacred, and that's Reverend King. We will not call him Dr. King this hour. This is Lee Habib. 
And you're listening to Johnny Cash singing the most recorded song in world history. I love this song when I was an atheist, and I love this song as a Christian. Because the message is just so damn stirring and beautiful. We're talking about the life of Martin Luther King, and that's Reverend King for the hour, not doctor. And again, he had a doctorate in divinity studies. So this man lived for the Bible, and the Bible was the source of his inspiration. It was the source of his courage. And without the Bible, there is no Martin Luther King. And the media is not telling you that, and they don't want to tell you that, and that's why we are. And we were talking about that social justice part of Dr. King, and how not all Americans, and particularly not all Christians, see eye to eye on how best to deal with the vexing issues of poverty. But I think time has taught us a lot, and it would have been fascinating to hear and see what Dr. King would think about the trillions we've spent and the way we've spent it to help poor people. And whether it's actually helped or perhaps hurt. Because it separated the church from the giving. It sent it to a bureaucrat, and the bureaucrat gave it. I think the biggest question would be, what would King have learned from European socialism and its effect on churches throughout that continent? You know, Dennis Prager, one of, uh, one of the great sources of wisdom for me and one of my mentors once said something fabulous, and he's Jewish, but we see so eye to eye on almost everything. And he said, the bigger the government, the smaller the church and the smaller the synagogue. Would King see the folly of the great society or, like so many modern progressives, would he double down on the commitment to bigger government and redistributionist policies? I'm not here to give you the answers. Just answer a couple, ask a couple of questions. Whatever your opinions on the matter... Say this about Reverend King. He cared deeply for the poor. He was there. He showed up. He was in the streets fighting for the poor every day until his last. And let's talk about that last day. On April 3rd, 1968, and we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, not far from Memphis, an hour's drive. The night before his assassination, King gave a speech at the Mason Temple in Memphis then the Church of God headquarters. He was there to support black sanitation workers who had been on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. In one one incident that spurred the strike, black street repairmen received pay for two hours when they were sent home because of bad weather, but white employees received a full day's pay. In a speech entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop, that night before he died, He made at least a dozen references to the Bible, and toward the end he spoke of the end of his own life, as if he knew it may be ending shortly. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Imagine that. Like anybody, he said, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. 
I just want to do God's will. The audience roared, as you heard. They could not know that their hero would be gunned down the very next day at the Lorraine Hotel in downtown Memphis. And though King had a sense of foreboding, he was not despondent because he knew he was doing the Lord's work. Here were the final words of his very final public speech. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, I'd heard Bono in an interview talk about that speech. And then he really started to dig into King's work. And out of it came, as you heard in the last hour, his greatest song, In the Name of Love, which he wrote not only for Dr. King, but it started to reconnect Bono to God, too. As a young boy growing up in Ireland, he had seen Protestants and Catholics kill each other. And he just didn't get it. And he ran away from faith. And the rest of his life, think about the music. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the streets with no name. What is every single song he's writing about? God and his struggle to get back to him. So listen carefully to the stories of Martin Luther King this week, folks. Listen very carefully. The man who so loved God, who so feared God's judgment, will be stripped of that animating spirit by a fiercely secular media. But it was God and King's desire to serve him that changed this country forever. No amount of revisionist history by anybody, can change that. That's what drives totalitarians crazy and secularists. They believe no God shall become before theirs, even if his name is the state. And that's what really drives liberals crazy about Jesus Christ's followers. He, his followers believe he is the answer to their problems, not the government. As King said, Jesus lives, Jesus saves. As King said that night in Memphis, a few hours before his death. We are going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me? It's to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher. Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. Indeed. And by the way, you could substitute preacher for rabbi. And as anyone who involved in the Jewish faith knows the importance of a rabbi in the, not just the synagogue but in the town is paramount and always the rabbi is the person you run to to seek for, seek for and, and receive wisdom this is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories 
And for the hour, the life of Martin Luther King, this day in history also brought to you by our friends at Hillsdale College. And my goodness, you want to learn about the American canon, the Western canon, everything from Plato and Aristotle to the Bible to the Founders' Vision, Locke, Montesquieu, straight up to current events. There's no better college in America to send your boy or girl. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Their online courses are the best. Their C.S. Lewis course was amazing. And of course, Economics 101, you just can't miss it. They're all available. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. When we come back, more on the Reverend Martin Luther King on this day in history and on the day we celebrate the life of Dr. King as a nation. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the life of Reverend Martin Luther King being celebrated here. And you were listening to Alicia Keys, one of the great young artists, young R&B artists, going back to her gospel roots and singing one of her favorite songs. And we play that today in honor of King wanted now to dig into a, another speech, this one a sermon, in a church in Chicago on the 17th of August, 1967. Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. I wanted to play it because what I think what you're going to find interesting is the audio we could find and the audio we couldn't. We searched everywhere, and there were remarkable parts of this speech that were redacted. And so you're going to hear the parts that we could find, and I'm going to read you the rest and leave it to you to think about why we couldn't find the audio on this. So let's start with the beginning of this sermon. And again, that's why we're here today, to honor Dr. King with words from him you are not hearing anywhere else in this country. Anywhere. Let's start. I want to share with you a dramatic little story from the gospel as recorded by St. Luke. It is the story of a man who by all standards of measurement would be considered a highly successful man. Yet Jesus called him a fool. If you will read that parable, you will discover that the central 
character in the drama is a certain rich man. This man was so rich that his farm yielded tremendous crops. In fact, the crops were so great that he didn't know what to do. And it occurred to him that he had only one alternative, and that was to build some new and bigger bonds so he could store all of his crops. This recording is briefly interrupted at this point. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That brother thought that was the end of life. So he was telling the story of this rich man who thought just eat, drink, and be merry. More. That's the end of life. A story that still resonates, don't you think? But let me now read what we couldn't find. Now, Jesus didn't call the man a fool because he made money in a dishonest fashion. There is nothing in that parable to indicate that this man was dishonest and then he made his money through conniving or exploitation. In fact, it seems to reveal that he had a medium of humanity and that he was a very industrious man. He was a thrifty man, apparently a very hard worker. So Jesus didn't call him a fool because he got his money through dishonest means. And there is nothing here to indicate that Jesus called this man a fool because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against wealth. It's true that one day a rich young ruler came to him raising some questions about eternal life, and Jesus said to him, sell all. But in that case, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. Why was that cut? Again, I'll leave that to you to think about and ponder. The next clip from this speech. Take a listen. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and wasn't concerned about it. He didn't make contributions to civil rights. He looked at suffering humanity and was concerned about it. Let me tell you the part we couldn't find. It's the part that preceded that line. Somehow in life, we must know that we must seek first the kingdom of God. And then all of those other things, clothes, houses, cars, will be added unto us. But the problem is all too many people fail to put first things first. They don't keep a sharp line of demarcation between the things of life and the ends of life. And so this man was a fool because he allowed the means by which he lived to outdistance the ends for which he lived. He was a fool because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. This man was a fool because he allowed his technology to outdistance his theology. This man was a fool because he allowed his mentality to outrun his morality. Somehow he became so involved in the means by which he lived that he couldn't deal with the way to eternal matters. Stripped. Couldn't find it. Again, you think about why. 
Let's play another part of this sermon. Finally, this man was a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on God. Do you know that man talked like he regulated the seasons? That man talked like he gave the rain to grapple with the fertility of the soil. That man talked like he provided the dew. He was a fool because he ended up acting like he was the creator instead of a creature. This man-centered foolishness is still alive today. And then again, this part was redacted. In fact, he said, it has gotten to the point today that some are even saying that God is dead. The thing that bothers me about it is that they didn't give me full information because at least I would have wanted to attend God's funeral. And today I want to ask, who was the coroner that pronounced him dead? I want to raise a question. How long had he been sick? I want to know whether he'd had a heart attack or died of chronic cancer. These questions haven't been answered for me, and I am going on believing and knowing that God is alive. You see, as long as love is around, God is alive. As long as justice is around, God is alive. There are certain conceptions of God that needed to die, but not God. You see, God is the supreme noun of life. He's not an adjective. He is the supreme subject of life. He's not a verb. He's the supreme independent clause. He's not a dependent clause. Everything else is dependent on him. But he is dependent on nothing. My goodness. This is the stuff we should all be talking about every day. Christian or not. Jew or Gentile. And so as we close out this hour, I want to play a little bit and the end of Martin Luther King's great speech to the nation and his march on Washington. Now you'll come to appreciate this very secular speech coming from this man of faith. And you'll come now to listen to it knowing from whom it came and from where it came, from God. Martin Luther King, simply a vassal, a pathway. He knew it, now you know it from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And my goodness, it can make you cry knowing now what we know about the man, knowing now what we know about him knowing that he was more than likely not going to make it to the age of 40. And he didn't, but he still lives with us. 
on this day in history and on the day that we're honoring the Reverend Martin Luther King, we were happy to bring you his own words from his own sermons and the source of everything. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. has been found what's to come has already been so i'll tell you that i'm pressing on This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, when we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and of course, military stories, and love stories, and even stories about death, personal struggle, you name it, we tell the story, and send your stories to us at Our American Network, because you and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories, and we produce them often here on this show. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about landmarks in your town. That's favorite restaurants, joints, bars, places to go see a band, a place in a park, whatever. Send those stories of your favorite landmarks to ouramericannetwork.org. And Pink's Hot Dogs is a landmark hot dog restaurant in Los Angeles. Richard Pink is the owner And we love to hear from small and big business owners alike here on Our American Stories and the story of Pink's Hot Dogs. Well, it's as American as it gets. Pink's Hot Dogs was established in 1939 by Paul and Betty Pink. It was established with just a little push card. And my parents were out of work at the time, and they were looking for employment, and they ran across an ad for a push card. And it cost $50.00. And my parents did not even have the $50, and they had to borrow it from my grandmother. And the push cart was available about two miles away from here, and my mother went down to where it was located and wheeled it all the way up Melrose Avenue and put it right here on the site of LaBray and Melrose. And she rented that site for $15 a month at that time. And it was the hot dogs were 10 cents and Cokes were a nickel. And believe it or not, there wasn't even electricity on the site. And they had to buy about a 100-yard extension cord to plug into a neighboring hardware store. And that's how they fired up Pink's in 1939. And for the next two years, they just had the hot dog cart. And then in 41, they built a smaller version of the building that you see today. And then in 1946, the very hot dog stand you see is what it looked like back then. And we haven't changed a thing since then. My parents had curbside service and people would drive up and park and they would bring them out a hot dog and a Coke and that's how it was back then. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And we've got Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studios. They're all in and around here and all the production offices are here. And so when celebrities came out from whatever city they were from in order to get discovered, they didn't have any money at the time and 
they could afford a hot dog. And then they started putting their pictures up on our wall. Now, today, we have over 200 celebrities on our wall. But in those days, they put their pictures up there because they were hoping that some of the directors and producers would discover them. They came in for a hot dog, and then, you know, they would get discovered. We've got the Ozzy Osbourne dog, Rosie O'Donnell. We got Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart actually waited in line here for about 45 minutes and created her own hot dog. And, you know, we've got a number of celebrities that have come in, but also the, the movie Mulholland Drive was filmed here, so we got a Mulholland Drive dog. We've got a Harry Potter dog. We got a Lord of the Rings dog. I mean, we got a lot of exciting hot dogs. It turned out people tended to want to order a hot dog by name rather than just a chili cheese dog. They wanted to have a name attached to it. But the chili cheese dog, that's what made us famous. People are always looking for new, something new to market their, their property, uh, whether it's an amusement park or the, even the airport for that matter. And so they came to us and they said, look, you're world famous and we really need something that's very special, very unique. And that's how really we came to Cedar Point. They had tried us out at Knott's Berry Farm, which is probably the most famous amusement park in all of Southern California, maybe all of California. And then the owners of Knott's Berry Farm said, you know, you're selling so well, I know you're going to do well at Cedar Point back in Ohio. So we'd love you to come back here. We want to bring your brand. We want to bring the concept, the image, the whole celebrity connection back to Ohio. And we said, fine, because we really like the way you operate pinks over at Knott's Berry Farm. I understand that we sell more hot dogs in California than New York and Chicago, believe it or not, maybe because of our weather, okay? And a lot of people, you know, bring hot dogs to picnics throughout the year and so forth. But in terms of pinks, I mean, we're on the cable channel, we're on the Food Network, we're on the Travel Channel and all that. That has put out the word so whenever you come to Los Angeles, you want a great hot dog. And I think every bit is good and probably even better. I'll challenge New York, I'll challenge Chicago, that our hot dogs are even better. And that's what those people that come in from those cities tell us. Pink's is at the corner of La Brea and Melrose in Hollywood. We are open from 9.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. every day, except on the weekends, 3 a.m., and in the summers to 4 a.m. It's the place you come after you spent the evening at a club, and, you, and Pink's is a party. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, I got the spicy Polish dog. It's really, really good, but really spicy. <laughs> and uh, I got the same thing, and again, it's spicy, but it's, it's really good. It's... Probably one of the best hot dogs I've ever had. I think it was called a stretch uh, hot dog with chili. And uh, I thought both the meat and the bun were just out of this world. I, I would say it's the best hot dog I've ever had in my life. And nothing is close to it. Come all the time. We live here. Uh, so I go by uh, from my house to my office. I go by here uh, twice a day. Um, I ordered a chili cheese dog, and it was really good. I liked it a lot. It was very good. I liked it. Yeah. And they are all right, by the way. Mine's the Brando dog. Try it sometime. If you're ever in La Brea and Melrose in L.A., this is the place to go. Best to go late night. It's even tastier. No one knows why. This is science, folks. It's not my opinion. It's a proven fact. But I've had pinks as early as 10 a.m. It does not get better. And uh, by the way, Mark's Hot Dog in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a close runner-up, the world's best onion sauce. But if you like a chili cheese dog, the buns are perfect, the chili's perfect. 
I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Again, if you have a place, a landmark, a favorite joint, tell us about it. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, Pink's Hot Dogs. Their story here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories, and it's time for our Better Healthcare at Lower Cost series, sponsored by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on an Australian immigrant that you likely don't know, named Dr. Peter Farrell, but you'll be glad to have met him. I ended up doing a PhD because I thought I wanted to be an academic, which I did for about 10 years until I got sick of academia. You know, it's a bit like bureaucracy, that which turns energy into solid waste. And the further up you go within the hierarchy, the more time you spend on administrative stuff and the less you spend doing what you're trained to do. And you get into politics. And sometimes the politics is such that it impacts what you're trying to do. It's a cancer. What was good in my case is that Baxter approached me. A $10 billion healthcare company. And said, hey, look, we want someone to set up and run R&D in Southeast Asia. So I went to live in Tokyo. A guy that was working with me said, uh, look, there's this guy, his name is Colin Sullivan, and he's treating snoring sickness with a reverse vacuum cleaner. And I mean, I kind of rolled him my back like a sprayed cockroach. I said, what? said, snoring, well, you know, it's the butt of jokes. And he said, no, no, go see this guy, seriously. So I sat down with him and he said, I hear you're a skeptic. I'm going to show you a video. And this is long before YouTube. He popped this tape in and there's this guy like a sumo wrestler on his back and a big bulbous mass and going. <laughs> and he said, that's an apnea which means without breath. The guy's upper airway is closed. Of course, gravity, your tongue goes back in your pharynx. And then if you've got a lot of fatty tissue around there, you'll pull it closed. Which causes the snoring as oxygen struggling to make its way to the lungs. And then what wakes you is the brain detects oxygen level, it's falling. And so once the brain goes, holy sh you know, the oxygen level's too low for life to be supported. So the brain and the heart have to be protected because you've got literally seconds, like a minute, 90 seconds, you're basically dead if the brain and the heart are starved of oxygen. So you get this fright response. You've got to get more blood into both organs. 
healthy blood is almost all oxygen. And everything else gets shut down acutely. And it could be four or five hundred times a night. Do you think that's good for you? Actually, it isn't. So what happens is that the whole of the body's biochemistry gets completely screwed up. And the longer you keep going with this, obviously the worse it is. And at some point you'll reach the point where it's irreversible. Then you're really in deep shit. And, you know, when I went to see this guy Sullivan and he showed me um, this guy going, and he said, do you think that's good for him? And I said, hmm. I said, let's move to the next question, can we? Anyway, then he slapped this Darth Vader mask on this guy, and it was a bespoke mask. He had a Swiss engineer making these masks individually. And these masks were like, you know, you'd put it on and you'd say, still leaking? How's that? Still leaking? And this was the guy's insight. Nobody liked to have this full face mask on. And Colin said, you know what? I think we can do it with just a nasal mask. And everybody said, oh, bullshit. All you're doing is when the person breathes and creates negative pressure, you're countering it. With what's called positive airway pressure, the pumping of air into the airway of the lungs, which keeps them open. And so the patient breathes normally. So the only way you can get injured is to pick the machine up and smash the guy over the head with it. So this is safer than an aspirin. I'm thinking, wow. So I said to Colin, how many people do you think suffer from this? And he said, oh, I, I don't have any idea. But he said, it's at least 2% of the population. And we're coming from Baxter, which had a billion dollar business in the dialysis area, where there was less than 0.2%. So I said, gee, you know, as an MIT educated engineer, I went 0.22 billion, 10 billion. I said, even if it's only 5 billion, that's a big market. So I went back to Baxter's Respiratory Home Care Division. I funded it on Baxter's behalf, and a year later they sold off the division. I'm literally reading this trade publication called Clinica. Baxter sells off Respiratory Home Care Division. Baxter has in his company? <laughs> Didn't they give him any warning that this was coming? No, no, no. I was only like in the top 64% of employees out of at least 6,000. But I thought, oh my God. I knew that if we didn't do something about it, that it was going to die on its bum. And a lot of people would have been let down. And I thought, you know what? I thought my time with Baxter was not likely to be that much longer because my boss got fired and he should have been. He was a cheerleader. You know, the guy put his feet up in a desk, smoke a cigar and say, how's it going, Pete? Great, Lawrence. And he'd say, keep it going. And, and then that I wouldn't see him again for three months. But then I got this snotty-nosed kid whose father was on the board of Baxter. Lester Knight was the guy. And if I had a disagreement with Lester, and I didn't have much respect for the guy, I mean, it, it, look, he was an okay guy, but, but he didn't have experience, and I suddenly ended up with him as a boss. And I thought, gee, how's that gonna work out? Probably not well for me. So I thought it's not that big a deal if we close down the Baxter Center for Medical Research and we put our efforts into ResMed. The name of this business that addresses sleep apnea. As long as I could cut a deal with Baxter. So the way it turned out is I called the president of Baxter, Jim Tobin. He was a decision maker, I'll give him that. He'd run over his grandmother if it, if it helped him. 
And Jim was, you know, he's a bright guy, Harvard. I, I couldn't figure out how Baxter could grow the way they did because nearly all the hierarchy were Harvard MBAs with no technical background. Now, I'm a great believer that if you're in a technical business, you do have to know what a pipette looks like and you've got to have been in a lab, for example. But these guys were government majors, economics majors, history majors with Harvard MBAs. And they all are. I mean, how are they making decisions, these guys? You know? Anyway, uh, they just bought American Hospital Supply for $3 billion to turn Baxter into a $5 billion company. And I'm going to them and saying, hey, this could be $10 million business in three years. And they're yawning. Saying, GP, great. Um, fantastic. They were yawning. And so they sold ResMed to Peter. And the first year, which was 89.90, we did a million dollars in revenues and we lost 250,000. The next year we did two million and we lost 150. So we're 400,000 in the tank. If you're building business, you're gonna lose money. You know, you gotta spend money to make money. I was, in fact, if anything, elated it could have been half a million, you know what I mean? And then the third year we did four million and made 400,000 at the bottom line. I had no idea how big this was and it just got bigger. You could add up HIV, AIDS, malaria and so forth, add them all up and you wouldn't reach the carnage caused by undiagnosed and therefore untreated sleep apnea. 50% of men and 23% of women have it. In the US it's around 10% have been diagnosed and therefore treated. Before ResMed, how many folks were actually being diagnosed and treated? Oh, a handful. I mean, a handful of people. I mean, it was not even a percentage. Nah, but I mean, that's, that's you know, you're going back to 1989, 30 years ago. Oh, it was, you did say, what, snort, what, snort, what, sleep, what? Huh? Our revenues are around two and a half billion. We have roughly 55% of the world's market. And people say to me, God, you think Baxter are all upset about that? I said, no. Is this another transaction? It's just another transaction. And innovators, risk takers, and people with the practical knowledge to get it done, not fancy degrees from fancy schools having nothing to do with the actual product. You're listening to Dr. Peter Farrell's story. And a dear friend of mine, Tom, in Irving, Texas, Tom Trattup, well, he had had sleep apnea for the longest time, and what it did to his life and his marriage, and that this technology was around to save him, and really save his marriage, his family life, and everything else. When we come back, we're going to learn more about this remarkable story, this remarkable company, and my goodness, this really remarkable guy and what a talker he is. More with Dr. Peter Farrell, his story here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with our American stories and Dr. Peter Farrell's story of discovering a physician named Colin Sullivan who invented this crazy device to treat sleep apnea that we now know as the CPAP machine, and only because Peter brought it to the world. I mean, you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurship is about huge risk-taking. Well, entrepreneurship is about minimizing risk and seizing opportunity. It's completely the opposite. You're doing it because you think you can make it, not because you think you're going to lose your shirt. You're trying to minimize the risk of losing your shirt. And then innovation only occurs when somebody writes a check. Unless it's delivered to the marketplace and somebody says, this is solving a problem, which I think is important, and I'm going to write you a check because I think it's going to help solve the problem. That's what innovation's about. It's not about creativity and imagination. It requires creativity and imagination, otherwise you don't get to something that somebody else needs and is willing to pay for. So Colin showed me this Darfader thing with this mask that you basically had to squeeze your face in. And then you had this machine that you could have run your swimming pool on, and it sounded like a freight train. And he said, I should emphasize this is a treatment, it's not a cure. The guy has to wear that every night. And I said, oh, you're kidding. He said, I'm not kidding. And he said, in fact, I'm going to bring this patient in and I want you to talk to him. His name is Eddie Merck. I said, okay. So he brings in Eddie. Eddie's about my body mass index. I'm around 25, 26 kilograms per meter squared. So in other words, he wasn't a fat bastard. So Eddie came in, he had welts on his cheeks where the mask was digging into him. And he had a bit of necrosis of the bridge of his nose where the mask was digging into him. And he walked in and I said, Eddie, Peter Farrell, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. It's obviously inconvenient, the mask. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, but, you know, a bit of Vaseline and so forth. And I said, wow. I said, the machine's like a freight train. He said, oh, yeah, well, what I did was I moved my bed to abut the garage wall. I drilled a hole in the wall between the bedroom and the garage, and I put the machine out with the car. I said, wow, this is pretty inconvenient. He said, well, okay, let me tell you what my life was like. I'd go to bed for 10 hours. I'd get up in the morning. I'd go to breakfast with my wife. I'd fall asleep. I'd nod off. I'd hop in the car, first set of traffic lights. I'd nod off. I was so sleep deprived. And then I'd go into work. I couldn't sit in a chair. I'd go into spontaneous rapid eye movement sleep, literally go into REM sleep. He said, so I spent the whole day just staying awake. I didn't do a tap of work. I said, what's the company's name? Anyway, he said, I didn't do a tap of work. And then I'd drive home, falling asleep at traffic lights. I'd get home, couldn't go to the opera, a movie, out to dinner with friends, because I'd simply just immediately fall off to sleep. I'd go to bed for 10 hours and wake up feeling like and not sleeping, and that was my cycle. He said, the first night I went on this, I dreamt for the first time in 15 years. And he said, I got up in the morning, I didn't fall asleep at breakfast, I drove into work without falling asleep at the traffic lights one night, and he said, and I was able to work for the first time in years. Again, I said, what's the name of the company? Anyway, um, and then I drove home without falling asleep. He said, bottom line, I'd sleep on hot coals if I could have that result. I said, okay. So this thing, this gargantuan Rube Goldberg thing actually works. And I looked at it and I said, you know, in six months we can have something that's, well, a fifth the size, a tenth of the noise levels. And that's exactly what we did. We've got a device today called an Air Mini, which weighs 0.7 pounds. 
Not even your dog can hear it. But the device is literally that big. It's like a grande cappuccino. That's saving something much bigger. Couples being able to sleep in the same bed. I mean, snoring is just so off-putting. You can't sleep next to somebody who's going... I mean, it's, it's not the next bedroom, it's the next zip code. It's really bad. So it breaks up more marriages than financial and adultery and all the rest of it. I mean, it's hugely significant. The four main causes of death are cardiac disease, cancer, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and stroke in that order. Sleep disorder breathing affects all of them. Stroke, 75% of patients that have had a stroke have sleep disorder breathing. Was it causal? We don't have enough data to know. But you know what? If you've got, had the stroke and you don't treat the sleep disorder breathing, you're not gonna get out of rehab. You're gone. COPD, a third of the patients. There are 320 million people roughly in the country. 10% of them have COPD. And 30% of those have sleep disorder breathing. And if you have COPD with sleep apnea, you're gonna be in for an acute exacerbation and you may not get out and you'll be back in, in 30 days unless you get it treated. Cancer, we have in vitro data, lab data, and we have animal data, and we have prospective clinical data showing that if you have a solid tumor, I think it applies to blood-borne tumors like leukemias and lymphomas, we just don't have the data. If you have a solid tumor like colorectal, breast, prostate, lung, etc. If you have severe sleep apnea, your time to death is reduced by 80%. 80. So in other words, let's say colorectal cancer. From diagnosis to death is roughly an average of five years. There'll be early deaths, late deaths. It's like a Gaussian distribution. If you have severe sleep apnea, it's one year. One year. And we know the mechanism. Cancer likes a low oxygen and a low pH, an acidic environment with low oxygen. That's what cancer likes so it can grow. So you take cancer cells in a lab and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen, the cancer cells go nuts. And there is a, a mouse model, a guy, David Gazal at the University of Chicago, he's got these little black mice which live two years domestically. Give them melanoma, it's about a year. You take that melanoma colony into a lab and you do the yin and the yang of repetitive high and low levels of oxygen. A matter of weeks, they're all dead. And the same happens in humans. And then you've got heart disease. 50% of patients with heart disease, any form of it, have sleep disorder breathing. I mean, you go like this on the heart. Imagine what it's doing to your heart. It's the number one cause of high blood pressure. Untreated sleep apnea is the number one cause, and that's on the NIH website, and it's been there for 13 years. You'd think you'd be manning the barriers. Peter is 76 years old, and I wondered if he had a sense of urgency about these literally life and death matters that the world doesn't know about and the lives and money that could be saved with this simple treatment. Well, I think you do. I mean, I, you know, but there's no point in beating your head against a brick wall. You just sort of keep going.
and try to get the word out. I mean, that's all you can do, you know. But it is, um, it's underappreciated and I feel like a missionary. I mean, it's, it's crazy that in this day and age that something as simple as sleep disordered breathing is not being addressed. Our main goal was education. And great job on that, Alex and Joey. And what a story. And again, we love to tell these stories about better health care at lower costs. And always, innovators are out there, entrepreneurs are out there solving problems. And Dr. Farrell was dead right uh, that in the end, our entrepreneurs are risk mitigators. And they don't want to lose their capital, and they want to solve a problem. And all that creativity is harnessed to solve that problem A great story, Dr. Peter Farrell's story, and sleep apnea, and the solution to sleep apnea here on Our American Stories. American stories, and one of the great stories of the 20th century is The Great Gatsby, a 1925 novel written by F. Scott Fitzgerald that follows a cast of characters living on Long Island in the summer of 1922. Nick Carraway, the novel's narrator, rents a small home on Long Island next door to the lavish mansion of Jay Gatsby, a mysterious multimillionaire who holds extravagant parties but does not participate in them. We start at the end of this classic American novel set in the Roaring Twenties with a dramatic reading by Frank Muller. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's, and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances, and the matchings of invitations, Are you going to the Ordways, the Hersey's, the Schultz's? And the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands, and last the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West, not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells and the frosty dark 
and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West, after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their interminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old, even then it had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg, especially, still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco. A hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher, on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house, the wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing, that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order, and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together, and what had happened afterward to me, and she lay perfectly still, listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration, her chin raised a little jauntily, her hair the color of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though there were several she could have married in a nod of her head. But I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. Then I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember, she added, a conversation we had once about driving a car? Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were rather an honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm thirty, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her and tremendously sorry, I turned away. One afternoon late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, 
his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell. I don't know what's the matter with you. Tom, I inquired. What did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house, he broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did in Daisy's, but he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say, except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering... Look here, when I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident. And perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant from his garden, and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there and saw its lights stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some vinyl guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, 
The trees that had made way for Gatsby's house had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning... So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And again, that's Frank Muller, his reading of The Great Gadsby, the great 1925 novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. A great story here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 